Hi there. My name is Mireya Perez, and I aspire to create a platform where language service providers can tell their stories and where listeners can find inspiration and creativity. This podcast is dedicated to you, the language professional that desires to listen to the journeys of others in order to create their own path and personal branding. Here, I'll feature an array of guests from all fields of interpretation, as well as translation, willing to share their stories with you. Join me as we embark on professional and personal development by telling our stories. This is the Brand the Interpreter podcast. Hi there. Thanks for tuning in. And I truly hope today's episode finds you well. I realize these times are a bit upside down for a lot of us. I hope you're able to find, at the very least, a bit of distraction amidst all the constant possible negative chatter we're hearing nowadays. May you and your loved ones continue to be vibrantly healthy and safe. Today we're going to hear from Michelle Gallagher. Managing Director of Cross-Cultural Communications, the leading national training organization for educational, social services, and medical interpreters. With more than 350 licensed trainers in 39 U.S. states, Washington, D.C., Guam, and six other countries. Michelle has more than 16 years of experience in facilitation and management of professional training programs for international audiences. She has taught at the Universidad Europea de Madrid and managed training organizations in Madrid and Maryland. She has also worked as a freelance Spanish interpreter. Michelle received her BA in International Relations from Tulane University and her MBA in Marketing and General Management from the University of Maryland's Smith School of Business. She spent nine years living in Madrid, where she received her MA in Conference Interpreting at the Universidad de Cluny. Michelle has volunteered for Youth for Understanding, an international student exchange program since 2003, and has served as the webmaster for the National Capital Areas Translators Association, a local chapter of the American Translators Association. So, without further ado, here's Michelle's story. Hi, Michelle. Thank you so much for being with us today. Sure, Mireya. And thank you again uh, for inviting me onto your podcast. I'm really excited to be one of the first uh, people yes. that you're interviewing for this. And I think there is a bright future, quite honestly, for this type of podcast uh, for interpreters. You. Yeah. So I am, I'm originally from Maryland. I was born in DC. Um, I'm from Maryland. But my interpreting background, I suppose, and, and history along those lines really started because I spent a summer abroad in northern Spain years ago, the summer before my, my senior year of high school. And at that moment, I said, I want to come back. <laughs> I, I want to come back to Spain. Um, my high school Spanish is not cutting it. You know, I, I need to come <laughs> back and, and actually learn this language for real. So I picked my university on the basis of one that had a strong study abroad program for a whole year, went back to Madrid, did my junior year abroad, and then ended up spending eight more years 
in Madrid. So I spent a total of nine years in Madrid uh, doing my master's in conference interpreting, working there, living there. Um, I was teaching English for years and then ended up going into management in a language school and then also being a freelance translator and interpreter. And I think that languages are such an amazing way to bring people together. Um, I met so many interesting people because of language, people who wanted to learn English. And then over the years, I've you know studied Spanish, I've studied French, German, American Sign Language. And wow. it's, yeah, yeah, it's absolutely fascinating um, what language can do and also how it can, it can bridge those divides between people who may think that they have nothing in common. And yet we all have something in common at the end of the day. We all want to communicate with others. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's in a nutshell, that's a bit of my background. Um, after doing the, the master's in conference interpreting in Madrid, um, shortly thereafter, I moved back to the States, back to Maryland, and I started volunteering in a medical clinic um, with no training as a medical interpreter. <laughs> so that was a bit of a crash course um, <laughs> in the differences between, you know, one area of interpreting, um, which is conference interpreting, and then another area, which is medical interpreting, and actually quite different. And I like to tell people when, when I've given workshops for interpreters that I jumped into it because I wanted to help. And I wanted to see how it was done. And yet without any training, I was staying in the room with the provider and the patient. Um, I was explaining things. I was helping people fill out forms, you know, everything wrong. <laughs> so <laughs> I was getting the interpreting right, but <laughs> everything else um, was wrong. And so I ended up um, finding a school near me, uh, this company, Cross-Culture Communications, taking a program with them, their 40-hour, the community interpreter program, and then discovering that educational interpreting was actually where um, my passion uh, was. And so I started interpreting in public schools, parent-teacher conferences, back-to-school nights, IEPs, and that is really where I found a connection between my training and teaching background and interpreting. And it was just, it was, it was an amazing experience to be able to connect parents to their children's education, to make sure that the child had everyone around the table speaking in the same language, quite honestly, um, for the betterment, you know, of that child and, and of his or her family. So that's, again, that's in a nutshell, my background where interpreting is concerned. Michelle, take us back to the Madrid years. Now you say that you did your, your master's in uh, interpreting, correct? And you were teaching English. Is that where you began the interpreting career? Did you begin there? What, what was that moment that you transitioned into interpreting? So I was, when I was in Madrid, I was teaching English because that was one of the, the jobs that a native English speaker would have no problem finding. Mm -hmm. um, there was a huge need back then and there still is for English classes in Spain and in Madrid in particular. And so I started teaching English, worked for several different schools. By that point, my Spanish was getting good enough that I was actually getting private work as a translator as well. So working from Spanish into English. Um, I actually helped, I was, I was really honored actually, two of my students who were journalists, um, one who wrote a number of articles for El País, one of the major newspapers in Madrid and, and in Spain actually. Um, they asked me to translate all of their articles into English to apply for scholarships in the States for journalism schools. Oh, and one of them got the scholarship and came to the States and studied. Um, so that was kind of accidentally falling from language teaching into translation, first uh -huh. of all. 
Um, and then afterwards realizing, wow, I would prefer to use these language skills to actually be with people uh-huh. <laughs> as opposed to being in front of the computer um, by myself. I, I liked translation. I thought it was very, very challenging and, and really stretches you mentally. But um, I thought maybe I can use these language skills to actually be with people face to face in different interpreting encounters. And so I discovered there was a program um, in a school uh, which is called Cluny at the time. It was associated and accredited by a university in Paris. And they offered several uh, intensive uh, masters in conference interpreting. Um, so you could do it Spanish, English, Spanish, French, um, or both, or all three languages, I should say. So I sort of, that was the track, you know, from teaching language, translation, to interpreting. And by doing the master's in conference interpreting, it really improved my Spanish. And it improved my, I guess, my confidence, um, my ability to accept assignments and to start branching out on my own. And those first few assignments were really um, for nonprofits. Um, so it was a nonprofit feel. Um, it was helping people communicate who had come from different countries to have their conferences in Madrid. Um, and so that was my background and that was my start in interpreting. And I thought it was interesting. And yet when I moved back to the States and moved out of the booth, right, um, moved from the interpreting booth to the patient and um, provider in the room and then moved to the uh, classroom with the teacher and the parent and then the student in some cases, that for me was, was a much more meaningful, or at least for me personally, type of interpreting, where you are interpreting for people who desperately need that person who speaks or who signs both languages for them to communicate. And I, I found that much, I found that had, had an even greater meaning than um, interpreting in conferences, which is, of course, is extremely important for people to exchange information, to make connections, but to interpret interpret for that parent who turns to you with tears, right, in his or her eyes, because they are finally able to communicate with their child's teacher, that touched me, at least, especially as an educator myself. Yeah, I think that for those of us that are in the education field, we can definitely relate to that experience. You come back from Madrid and you begin in the medical field and you say, I started doing all things wrong. How did you come to the point where you realized I'm doing it all wrong? So I realized it once I did training. And once I had done training specifically for community interpreters, which of course includes medical, educational, and social services. So no one in the clinic told me I was doing right or wrong. They said, hey, can you speak Spanish, English? Great. And they, looking back, I don't think they ever worked with professional interpreters. A number of their staff members were bilingual in Spanish. So they would have that dual role in the clinic. And this clinic itself where I was interpreting was... um, was a subsidized clinic. So a lot of folks came in, paid little to nothing, probably on a sliding scale, and the providers would volunteer their services. So we had a podiatrist who would come in once a week, you know, other specialists who would come in and donate their time and their expertise. So it was um, sort of an all hands on deck. Everyone does what they can. And because I didn't, I don't think there were any professional interpreters who were working there, nor was anyone trained as a professional interpreter, there was no right or wrong. It was just help the patient communicate with the doctor and vice versa. That was how it went. So when I took training, and again, I had, you know, I'd already done a master's. I thought, oh, I know how this works. <laughs> right. But when I took training in a different area of interpreting, that's what really opened my eyes because I was having issues already 
when I was staying in the room, the client, you know, the doctor rapid fire shoots off a whole list of instructions or throws a form, you know, at the patient and then tells me, help the patient fill out the form. He or she, the doctor, leaves the room running to attend someone else, especially in a clinic where you don't have, you have to stretch resources, right? The doctor has to see multiple people at the same time. So for me, it was a challenge to interpret in that situation because the provider wasn't there. And I didn't know how to deal with that because it, that doesn't occur in conference interpret. Everyone's in the same room. You know, you have your audience, you have your speaker, your panel of speakers, and you don't face that challenge, not normally in a conference interpreting situation. So when I finally took a 40-hour foundation program, that question was answered as if the provider leaves the room, you as the interpreter need to leave the room as well, right? The rule of three. You must have those three people in the same room together for the interpreter to do her job, which is interpret and provide that conduit of communication. So I find it fascinating because standing from where I am now, it seems like such a common sense solution. And yet it never occurred to me when I was in that situation myself without training. Yeah, I think that what it stemmed from, it sounds like more of a feeling, like something didn't feel right, right? Mm-hmm. Because you were saying in conference interpreting, there, there is an interaction with the interpreter. It is the speaker and the audience, and right? And the interpreter is in their booth. And then you, you begin an interpreting assignment in the medical field where you mentioned there's no trained interpreter, and it's like the complete opposite. It's the interpreter is now dependent on to do all kinds of other things not related to interpreting. So it sounds like you encountered this moment where it's like, this doesn't feel right. A completely different dynamic than conference. Uh, Now they're relying more on you. So maybe you're thinking this is wrong. Yeah. And I think that's a good way to put it, Mireya, that I sensed something was off where I see the two people that I'm interpreting for are not in the same room. The patient turns to me and has questions about the form. I'm not the expert on the form, right? I don't know, or I may make mistakes, right? Helping them fill out the form. They're going to say something to me. Am I going to be able to remember that and interpret it back to the doctor? Um, So all of you, you felt, or at least I felt in this situation, like um, pieces of communication were falling through the cracks and that the two parties who really needed to communicate with each other were not on the same page because they were literally not in the same room. Yeah. What was that moment when when you found this information for cross-cultural communications? I did. So I knew I was going to move back to the States about a year before I did. Um, My parents are still in Maryland. A lot of my friends are still here. And I knew I wanted to make that transition sooner or later. And so I had started doing online research, just Googling it. And I discovered this language, uh, I should say this training organization for interpreting about a half hour away from where my parents lived. (laughs) And so it seemed like, okay, the stars have aligned. I'm going to go back. I'll move back, which, you know, was very difficult to do, Um, but it was time um, to move back to the States. And at that point, I I basically lined it up so that when I came back, I could start volunteering at this clinic that I'd already connected with and then take the training uh, when the next session ran, uh, which, so I moved back, I think, I think it was end of August or beginning of September. I was volunteering for a solid month at the clinic and then took the training program in October. And while I was taking the training program, of course, I was still volunteering, but it was amazing to apply these techniques immediately in my volunteer work and then later on in my paid work as an educational interpreter. And to to go back to what we were saying before, that feeling that I wasn't that I wasn't doing something correctly, that the situation wasn't developing as it should, it's amazing how training gives you the confidence to say, 
to the provider, to the patient, to whomever, this is what we need to do because of X, Y, and Z. And then to actually see it take place and to see people's outlooks you know, change because you're giving them a reason why we have to do things a certain way. Going back, for example, to the educational interpreting that I've done, that example that I gave, which is actually a concrete example where a father turned to me with tears in his eyes and it was him, his wife, their child, and on the other side of the table, you know, the usual half a dozen school administrators, teachers, right. you know how it goes. Right. Um, and they were in an IEP meeting. And at the very end of that, he turned to me. He was actually saying, thank you to everyone here. Thank you so much to you and to you and to you as the school for helping us with our child's education. And then he said, and I want to thank the interpreter too for interpreting for us. We feel for the first time that we can actually communicate with everyone here. And for me, that was, of course, the gratitude that the parents were showing and that the father in particular was expressing. But it was that sense of empowerment, which really gave me positive chills. Because here he was speaking with his own voice, being able to thank everyone, as opposed to being at the mercy of an untrained interpreter who is trying, probably trying to do her best, but doesn't know the rules in order to put everyone at the same level around that table, right? So everyone has a, the same sense of um, uh, they're, they're all empowered. They're all on equal footing, and that means it's an equal relationship. Yeah, I love that. You touched really quickly on something that's really crucial, which is that untrained bilingual staff member that are wanting to help as well. They just lack the tools. So mm-hmm. everyone present there knows their role, right? The specialists present know their role in the meeting. Hopefully everyone there is, you know, all in tune with what their role is. Even the parents being there as parents may know their role. But that bilingual staff member without those tools may not necessarily be able to perform the role the way it should so that you can have an outcome such as that, which is ultimately what we're wanting, right? In in the program, the community interpreter program about uh, communicative autonomy, right? Where everyone is in charge of their own communication. And so that bilingual staff member may not necessarily have those tools. And it is so empowering to know that once you have those tools, like you just mentioned, you can put them into use immediately and see the change in dynamics in that meeting. Yeah, and it is true, right? Everyone around that table is in a collaborative environment. And it's, it is just a matter of providing people with the necessary training and the reasons why they're doing what they're doing. Um, we've had so many training participants here go back to their organizations, and they are bilingual staff. And they say, you know, <laughs> They say, okay, we're, we're actually going to be changing procedures here, right? I'm not going to be helping the patient fill out the form. That is the provider's job. I'm here to interpret because if I, if I fill out the form, I may make mistakes, right? There may be issues of liability. If I'm not um, someone who's trained in this form, for example, what it means and how to fill it out properly. So it's, it's changing behavior so that everyone, again, is on the same footing, is on the same level when you're in that room interpreting between two different parties or multiple parties for that matter. And yet it is a collaborative environment. So you see that change happen almost immediately when people go through a training program, which is so rewarding, right, for the interpreter for the, or a bilingual staff member, you know, whichever role they have, um, and everyone else 
as well. But it does take a little bit of a little bit of convincing sometimes because you know, I'll, I'll say that about myself as well, right? It's hard to change. <laughs> it is hard Definitely. sometimes to to change our behavior. Michelle, what would you say has been your biggest challenge or roadblock during your career? I'll be honest, I've never, and it's quite funny, I was talking about this with a friend the other day, I've never truly known what I wanted to do in life, which I find hilarious. And yet then I'll tell other people that too. And they laugh and they say, oh, I I don't know either. (laughs) When I was little, um, I went through several phases. Um, one particular job I was interested in was being a park ranger. You know, I like the outdoors and collecting rocks. Um, now I've converted that into a passion for gardening, quite honestly. So I'm not going to be moving out to any national park anytime soon. My husband and I like to visit them. That's for sure. <laughs> um, we love to do that. Um, that's, that's our hobby when we go on trips, um, we'll, you know, arrange our road trips or, or whatever we do based on the national parks and the stamps that they have. So I recommend everyone do that. <laughs> if you love the outdoors, it's great. And you discover so many cool places in this, in this country as well. But um, that's really been my biggest challenge, that I've never known exactly what I want to do. Um, if I look back on what I have done so far, a common thread is training and teaching. And again, that could be English. That's what I started out with. Um, and now interpreting. And I think that the, I guess my inability to really determine what I want to do has led me to do different things. So I guess that's a challenge, also a benefit <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that I am curious. And that's, that's what I found helpful and interesting when I started interpreting. And what I think really makes a good interpreter is a curiosity, a curiosity to explore different things, to build out your glossaries, to be a rabid reader of many different things and to build out your knowledge in many different areas, to have conversations with many different people, to learn. We, we often go to conferences, uh, you know, for the business side of it, but also to, to meet new folks and to see what's going on in the interpreting world. So to be, I guess, curious, which is a great advantage and skill I think that good interpreters have because then you learn so much because you never know what's going to happen in that interpreting encounter. What vocabulary will come up? What terminology? Um, you know, a reference to a song, for example, may come up when you're interpreting as well. Um, so those are things that I guess the pros and cons or the advantages, disadvantages of not knowing exactly where you're going <laughs> in life, but being curious and trying to make the best and, and really um, find the positive in everything that you do and everything that you see. Which actually leads me to the next question having to do with overcoming fear or limiting beliefs. So as individuals, we do tend to be curious about a lot of things, particularly maybe in our even our careers. But then I feel that there's a moment where we don't take that additional step towards whatever our curiosity may be leading us to. How have you been able to overcome fear or limiting beliefs or doubts with regards specifically to your career? I think getting out of one's head, i.e. talking to others, family, friends, significant others, is really important. And it's something which I do on a regular basis. Um, I'm not the most extroverted person. I like to say that I'm an outgoing introvert (laughs) is how I would describe myself. But I find that talking to other people, especially people whose opinions you deeply value, helps. Helps with the fear, helps with the doubt, helps with insecurities as well. So that, first of all, 
you're voicing it, right? You're, you're pulling it out of your head. You're not just talking to yourself. And second of all, you're getting some kind of input and feedback from people that you care about. And maybe they can give you advice and maybe they can't. Maybe they just say, wow, that's difficult. I don't know what, I don't know what you should do, but at least you're reaching out. You're getting support, you know, emotional or, or whatever kind of support it is. And I have found that to be one of the biggest blessings in life to have people that you can lean on, right? So they help you in your time of need and vice versa. Um, and, and it goes back also to that curiosity, right? How do other people deal with this situation? What would they do? <laughs> Let me find out and then maybe I can make a better decision. With the, the part of your question about fear, I have found time and time again to deal with fear, I will take a situation that I'm in, however stressful or awful, and I'll say to myself, Michelle, what is the worst that could possibly happen? And I'll put that on the table. I'll look at it. And by bringing that out of the shadows, I'll then be able to tackle it better because I'll know what the worst case scenario is. <laughs> and I'll say, okay, if that's the worst that can happen, let's go about tackling little pieces of it or developing a battle plan for how to get at least part of this done um, or climb half of this mountain. And then we'll see about the other half. So once we get there, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's break it down as opposed to just being this monolithic fear or um, challenge that you feel like you can't start scaling from any side. And I don't know why I'm using all these mountain climbing analogies. I'm not a mountain climber, but I'm so ready for the outdoors. And that's, that's actually a really good point, Medea. Um, gardening is what helps me also overcome stress and um, difficult situations. I'll often find if I go out in the garden with a stressful situation ruminating in the back of my mind. Um, if I put it to one side, spend some time with my plants, by the time I'm done, um, I've been able to see it in a different light and find a calmer, saner way to start tackling the problem. I love that. I feel especially when you talk about making that human connection uh, with others and just opening up and being honest about uh, where you where you stand and some of those fears. And I've found particularly lately that it has been the people around me where I've opened up and have been vulnerable, that they are the ones that help me push through that fear, that limiting belief. So I completely agree with you about making up making those connections not trying to do these things alone because we can be our own worst enemy particularly if we are unable to get out of our own heads being able to make those connections with others and being vulnerable and saying I've got this brewing and I just don't know if and for someone else to give you that validation and say you've got the skills to do that. You can do this. Um, I think sometimes that's all we need to be able to break through some of these limiting beliefs and gardening. Most definitely. They're <laughs> 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 just there to be cared for. That's it. So my mom is English. My maternal grandfather was a huge gardener of veggies, um, veggies, primarily vegetables. And then my maternal grandmother was flower crazy. So they were both big gardeners. My mom did not start gardening until she was 30. And that's when we moved to a house. My parents bought a house. My sister and I were really little. And she started gardening like crazy. And when I turned 30, that was about the time that I moved back from Madrid um, and moved first in with my parents. That is when I started gardening. And I had, had no interest in it before. <laughs> Nothing. So partly genetics, you know, partly sanity saver. Um, but I'd recommend gardening to everyone. Michelle, 
share with us a little bit about what your role is uh, with cultural communications and then what is cultural communications? Sure, yeah. So cross-cultural communications is a dedicated interpreter training organization. We're based here in Columbia, Maryland, um, founded in 2001 by Marjorie Bancroft. And we're super specialized in providing training uh, primarily in community interpreting settings, so educational settings, social services, and of course, medical. I started, I took that program, God, this was back in October of 2011, is when I took the 40-hour program, and then I started working as a freelance educational interpreter. So by January of the following year, January of 2012, uh, Cross-Culture Communications reached out to me and said, hey, do you want to work for us part-time while you can still interpret? And I said, I don't know. I'm I'm enjoying this interpreting thing. (laughs) But I said, okay, fine. You know, I'll I'll give you guys a few hours a week. And, um, and, you know, I I have office experience, so that's okay. We, We can do that. And then this was January 2012. By August of that same year, I was working full-time for cross-cultural communications um, since my predecessor decided to leave. And so I was working full-time by then, but I was still saying, hey, I want flexibility so that I can go out and interpret because this is really what I want to do. So that was August 2012. By February of 2014, um, after managing the company for roughly two years, I said, and I must have been insane, but I was like, I want to go back to school and get my MBA so that I learn how to run a company for real. And that's what I did <laughs> while working full-time for cross-culture communications. I went to school full-time and did the MBA in two years while working. Um, so I lost my mind several times, reached out you know, constantly to my friends and family <laughs> during that time for support, but everyone put up with me, thank God. Um, and so that's, that's how I you know, sort of fell into the role, but then said, I need to go back. I need to get more training. Like I'm really big on training, (laughs) you know, if I haven't um, said that enough already. And that's how I felt more capable, not only as an interpreter, but as a manager to run a business, because then I understood more about the accounting side and finance, um, strategic, you know, initiatives. One of my areas of my MBA was focusing on marketing, you know, before, before I, I joined the organization, CCC didn't have like a concrete marketing plan. And so I, I put that together and that was part of the reason why we started going to conferences, right? It's like, let's not wait for people to come to us. Let's go to them. Let's meet people. Let's figure out what people need from training. Let's figure out what are the, the trends right now going on in the interpreting and translation industry. And that was a lot of fun. That's been a lot of fun to go out and to meet people, to be proactive. That's, I guess, in a nutshell, how, how I came to be where I am right now with CCC. And obviously the time that I spent in Spain and the fact that I had worked <laughs> blood, sweat, and tears to build up my Spanish, that helps a lot. Um, because with our training participants, I'd say at least 80, 85% of our training participants are born outside of the States. And they come to this country often with medical degrees, um, many with families. Um, for those who have medical degrees or other degrees, it's often very hard um, for them to get that degree recognized here in the States. So a lot of those folks will then say, hey, I have, I have another language other than English. I have my medical background. What can I do with that? And a lot of times it's, let me become a medical interpreter. So we give them the training. We give them that interpreter training piece so that they can leverage skills and abilities that they already have. That is so great, Michelle. What are you currently working on in terms of uh, any new projects, whether that is a personal project or a career project? So 
personal project is it's spring. <laughs> so I'm revving up my garden. <laughs> um, so we are, um, you know, doing that. My husband and I working on getting everything up and running. Um, on a professional side, we are in the middle of a pivot towards online training. And I think this is industry-wide. So it's not just CCC, it's not just cross-cultural communications, but it's the entire industry. And we're, you know, we've been seeing this in higher ed for years. I was actually the first, I was a student in the first class at the University of Maryland to have a hybrid uh, MBA program. So we did face-to-face classes, we attended those in D.C., And then we also had some of our classes delivered online. And this, I think, is just happening in education in general, where people are moving the courses online, whether they be synchronous, you know, live courses where you have the instructor in front of you and guiding you through activities, or if it's asynchronous, where you go through the course, the student goes through the course herself and does the activities um, at her own pace, um, and then perhaps links up with live sessions with the instructor and or with other colleagues. So this is particularly challenging, I think, for industries like interpreting, where a lot of the knowledge is skills-based and you need to practice not just with yourself, but with your colleagues. So developing this kind of training is very time-consuming to do it right. And yet, because you know, overall the industry salaries are lower um, than what, what one might hope for, how much, how much time, effort, and resources can the interpreter herself dedicate to her professional development? Right. If she's a member of an organization, you know, if she's a staff interpreter, then she has hopefully that training budget behind her. But if she's a freelance interpreter, how much out of her own pocket can she dedicate to her own education and training in interpreting? And I think that's a challenge, both for the freelance interpreter and for training organizations, to get the person the training that they need in order to improve their skills and abilities, yet it has to be worthwhile enough for them to want to invest that time, uh, money, and effort. Can you share with us what that dynamic looks like in terms of how this is being offered and what that would look like for the participant? Sure. So as I mentioned, there are two broad areas of online training, the live training and then the self-guided training. It's interesting. We looked at several years ago, looking at live training. Um, we did run a course that was training interpreter trainers how to deliver online training. We delivered it live um, in two-hour sessions, and that was quite successful. And yet other courses that we offered, where, which were shorter um, live sessions, did not get as much interest. Um, and I think that's because it's a, big, no, it's a big country, right? You're trying to draw in as many people as possible, and yet you're never going to find a time zone that is going to accommodate everyone, unfortunately. Right. Right. right? I mean, everyone, everyone is busy. Um, with interpreters as well, or freelance interpreters, you give up that time for the training session, and that means you can't accept an assignment during that time block. So you're giving up income and you're spending money on training at a certain point in time um, for hopefully a bigger future return. With the self-guided training, you can do it whenever you want to, whenever you need to. Um, and this is the, the type of training that we have launched with uh, when we launched with our online training back in the fall. And this is where we're seeing this is where we're seeing a lot of interest, where people can do it on their own, at their own pace, in their PJs, is what we like to say. You can yeah. do the training in your pajamas. And yet, how do you build back the interactive component? How do you build back the rich conversations that you get in a face-to-face training? Um, with interpreter training, I mean, you've probably seen this, Mina, you're a trainer yourself, that a large piece of what, what participants will remember are the conversations and the relationships that they build with their fellow participants. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the stories that are exchanged, the lessons that are learned, 
as well as phone numbers and emails that are exchanged, right? To build up your professional network. So the next step that we have and the next challenge we have is how do we build back in some of that interactive or interactivity, I should say. You know, we have interactive activities where people can guide themselves through and do self-assessments, but we'd like to at some point start adding back in live sessions so we can touch base and so we can form those relationships among interpreters. A lot of the feedback that the positive feedback uh, with regards to the training, the whole program is obviously amazing, but we do hear a lot of the feedback having to do with the just the activities with all the participants and how they're able to interact with one another and practice. I think that's a, one of the best components of the program, allowing for that experience uh, with other people. It makes a big impact on others. That ought to be interesting. And I think that's definitely something that participants are looking for, at least in my experience, is just that interaction. Yeah. I mean, as interpreters, we work alone a lot of the time, especially freelancers, I should say. So freelance interpreters work by themselves. This is why you see interpreting and translation conferences are still going strong. A few years ago, when all this web conferencing uh, software came out, people said, oh, this will be, well, some people, let's say, said this will be the death of face-to-face conferences and you know, death of the hospitality industry. And that may have been an exaggeration, but I think what we're seeing with conferences nowadays is that people will always need that face-to-face interaction, that connection, that video conferencing and remote working can get us to a certain point um, and be productive to a certain point. But we need, we need that, human, that human touch, that human contact. And I think that translates to training as well. I would be fascinated to see, you know, now that we have some of these um, free courses, you know, the MOOCs and other online platforms that are up and available for online training, how effective is the online training, right? And we, we as a training organization have to ask ourselves that too as we move further and further into online because that's where we want to be. We want to deliver effective training that's worthwhile for a participant to sacrifice some of her time and energy and money into, into doing that course. Yeah, absolutely. And it's um, not just about being online to be able to say we're online as well, right? And we're offering it online is giving the participants close to the same experience as they would if they were taking the live training because it's just, it's such a great training. So I can definitely see how cross-cultural communications would want to share that and give that out, even if that's a virtual experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big challenge. (laughs) That's for sure. That's for sure. But I think, you know, whenever we're going or transitioning into something, there's a lot of pushback, I think, because change is difficult. At first, it's difficult to accept and be able to see, particularly when things have been done uh, the same way for a long time. And then suddenly this uh, new concept comes in and, and I think the instant reaction is, oh no, that's not going to work out. Or, you know, that's just the, that'll be the death of everything we've been doing so far. I think that's just really um, fear-based responses as to what's going to happen to me, right? Or what's going to happen to us. Would you agree? I, I would. Yeah. And this is one, I think it's one of the abilities that a successful interpreter has, or one of the skills, I should say, is the ability to navigate change, both in the encounter, right, where anything can happen in that encounter. Um, it can be educational and turn medical in a heartbeat. You, know? yes. you have a fire drill, you know, whatever. <laughs> anything can happen in that encounter. And then to translate that to, to the professional career itself, 
Um, what do, how do we improve our abilities? Um, oh, okay. Now certification is a thing. Do we have to become certified? <laughs> right. Um, and after that, how do I maintain my certification? Which has been wonderful. I mean, in my opinion, in the medical interpreting area where just from, from a few years ago, right, we've moved from no one being certified to just to it being so commonplace that at a certain point you start saying, oh, you start assuming quite honestly that people are certified. So that's been fantastic. But it is, it's difficult to navigate that change. And yet as an interpreter, we have to, we have to embrace it quite honestly. And that is what makes us stronger and more agile interpreters. Definitely. Michelle, what advice would you give an up and coming interpreter? So several pieces of advice. As with any profession, find an interpreter and ask them tons of questions, right? Maybe this is a colleague, a relative, a friend of a friend. Find that person um, who is an interpreter, whether they be a staff interpreter or freelance interpreter, and ask them tons of questions. Why are they in the profession? How do they find themselves there? What skills do they think are most important? What credentials are necessary in order to become a professional interpreter? And then I also tell people who are interested, and of course, you need some training. So I would just take 40 hours right off the bat as a first step. And then once you've received some training, experiment and interpret in different fields. Um, and that could be kind of like what I did, where I didn't know. And so I interpreted a bit of medical. And it was interesting, but I realized it wasn't for me. And then I started interpreting in schools and fell in love with it. And I realized this is what I want to do. So they, they may need to experiment a bit. And this is what we tell folks in our training sessions as well. If you're not sure, think about what your professional background is. If you're a lawyer, maybe the end goal is to become a court-certified interpreter and to use that legal knowledge and legal background and leverage it for a rewarding career as a legal interpreter. Um, but someone who's thinking about getting into it as well is, or becoming an interpreter is, again, my advice is read widely. Learn everything that you can um, about anything, right? If you want to be an educational interpreter, you know, go onto the school's websites, you know, develop your glossaries, um, listen to podcasts, right? Like yours, Medea. Especially um, mine. Especially yours. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but really reach out both, you know, to your network, um, but also do your self-study as well. You know, don't sit on your backside. You've got to push yourself um, and really dive in and learn as much as you can about the profession. If you could shadow someone, right? If you can shadow a professional interpreter, if they're gracious enough, and if the circumstances permit, shadow that interpreter. I remember doing that in my master's for conference interpreting where that was part of the program. We sat in the booth with a professional interpreter. My mind was blown every day when I saw them where I was like, I can never get that good. Oh my God. Definitely. <laughs> oh my God. But you have something then to aspire to. You see the role, you see the model that you're striving to emulate, which is fantastic when you're just beginning to express interest in the profession. I personally feel that that shadowing piece is so important when you're uh, doing training. So that piece of advice, I would reiterate for sure. If you have the opportunity to shadow some someone else in a different field or in several fields of interpreting, do it. Because I, I heard a story of someone once that was really adamant about becoming a, a court interpreter. And this person went through the whole program. And then 
there's a piece where they had to shadow and realized there is no way that I can interpret for potential convicts or, you know, even convicts, right? Like going through some of the scenarios, the person was way too emotionally connected to the outcome that they quickly realized I'm going down the wrong path. So yeah, for sure. I think that shadowing piece is definitely a great opportunity to find out whether or not you're going to like the field you're in. Yeah, that's an excellent point. What would you like our listeners to walk away with from this episode, Michelle? It depends, I guess, on who your audience will be for this media. But for those who are professional interpreters, a lot of what I'm saying, they know. Um, But for those who are thinking about becoming interpreters, hopefully, I hope they have a, a better idea of the profession, at least, I guess, the some of the ways to start out and the bare minimum in order to start out would be a 40-hour program. In certain states, that'll be more, you know, like 60 hours or 120 hours. But more than anything, the fundamental role that training plays in the interpreting profession. Um, I think a lot of folks who are looking at it from outside and this could also be people who speak different languages, quite honestly. But if you're looking at it from outside, there's often this misconception that by speaking two or more languages, you can interpret. Or, of course, what a lot of people say is, quote unquote, translate, you know, misusing translation for interpreting in this case. So training is fundamental, I think, for any profession. But for interpreting, it is critical in order to do this correctly. Speaking a language, speaking more than one language is not a substitute for being trained as a professional interpreter. And with that training, as you pointed out, and shadowing, right, you can then make a better decision if you want to become an interpreter and then if you want to specialize in legal or medical or educational interpreting or, or whatever. But that training is really, really important. And without it, the interpreter can potentially make mistakes that will impact a patient's diagnosis, for example, a child's further you know, educational aims, goals, decisions um, as well. So an untrained interpreter can have very, can have potentially serious consequences for those people that she's interpreting for. And that training is, it's not, it's not an option. It's something which is absolutely critical in the path or on the path towards becoming a professional interpreter. I think ideally, I would love to think that the audience is a mix of audience. Uh, We're going to have in my world, I'm hoping those that are just starting in the field as well as seasoned interpreters. And for the seasoned interpreters, I'd like to add to something that Michelle just mentioned. We could definitely be mentors. And so if we have a new interpreter in the field that is asking questions, open yourself up to being this person's mentor. Because that one thing that you mentioned to them, which to you may seem something um perhaps basic, to them, it might be a breakthrough. It might be the answer to the question that they've been sitting on for quite some time and haven't been able to get the response. So I would say for our seasoned interpreters out there, be open to mentorship for uh, anyone that's interested in, in getting in the field. It, it makes a world of a difference. I, I know that I experienced this um, 
in the beginning of my career, just really thinking that I was alone out there, even though I knew there was an entire world of interpreters, I had no idea who to tap into. It does definitely make a difference to those that are entering the field. So that's a challenge for you guys that are seasoned interpreters out there. If you see someone that is looking for help, consider becoming a mentor. I think that's an excellent point, Mireya. We often get questions, quite honestly, from interpreters that we meet at conferences or, or even just people who call us up, quite honestly, out of the blue. And I think that's a way of giving back to the profession, to answer questions as fully, as completely as possible, but always leaving the door open, right? We always tell people that, hey, if you want to give us another call or send us another email, we're happy to chat. Yes, leaving the door open. It, it really does make, a, like I mentioned, a world of a difference. Where can our listeners find out more about cross-cultural communications, Michelle? So we have the usual social media channels up. So you can definitely find us on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Our website is www.cultureandlanguage. That's all spelled out, culture, A-N-D, language. Net. Um, that's the easiest way to find us. You're going to find our emails are on there. We, we love chatting with interpreters and interpreters-to-be. So you'll have our contact information there, phone number, emails, everything. And we're always happy to have a conversation. Sounds great. Michelle, I really enjoyed our conversation today. And once again, truly appreciate your time. And thank you for telling your story. Mireya, thank you so much for the invitation. It has been an honor having this lovely conversation with you. I wish you and your podcast all the best, and I plan to be a loyal follower. Thank you thank again. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. Well, what did you think? I think by now we're beginning to see that many of our stories have more in common than they have differences. That while our backgrounds, although unique, carry wisps of similarities whether it's in the love of languages, the love of the written word, the desire to help others, our constant search for finding purpose, or our desire to improve our skill sets. These are the types of similarities that connect us, that make us a community of united language professionals. Well, that does it for today's show, guys. But before I go, I'd like to share a story of hope with you. It is the story of an old Cherokee and his grandson. An old Cherokee told his grandson, My son, there is a battle between two wolves inside us all. One is evil. It is anger, jealousy, greed, resentment, inferiority, lies, and ego. The other is good. It is joy, peace, love, hope, humility, kindness, empathy, and truth. The boy thought about it and asked, Grandfather, which wolf wins? The old man quietly replied, The one you feed. Thank you once again for joining me. I hope to see you on any of the Brandy Interpreter social media platforms. Take care and see you again soon. Bye-bye.